0: The following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Probably one of the worst phrases that we have in our day and age, is the phrase that goes something to the effect of well i guess all we can do now is pray i'm sure we've all heard this hopefully none of us have said it but what does this phrase imply this phrase implies that prayer is on the back burner that prayer is something to only be sought once all human effort has been exhausted and now we kind of throw our hands up in defeat And unfortunately, this is not only just in the world, but we even hear it sometimes in the church. We hear it sometimes in the church, and it really exposes the wrong view of prayer, a a misunderstanding of what prayer truly is and the value and the gift that it is that God has given to us. But also on the converse, we have, and this may be more prevalent in our circles, where we affirm heavily the sovereignty of God, We think if God is sovereign, what's the point of prayer? Because if God is sovereign and if He has ordained all things and decreed all things from eternity past, then what's the point in praying? What's the point in beseeching Him? Well, here, Paul, in these last couple verses of chapter 3, Paul really lays that bare and shows the futility of it and the foolishness of it. We come to these last couple verses of 11 through 13... And this is kind of like a hinge pin in the the book. Paul has just been telling the Thessalonians he's been reminding them of all that has taken place among them. He's been reminding them of the joy he feels at at their turning to God from idols. He's reminded them two times that he constantly prays for them. Once in in chapter 1 and and earlier in chapter 3. And now Paul comes to this point and now he actually does pray for them in the letter right before he then goes on to give more exhortation to them. And so I'd like to look at this in three points, as Paul lays out not only a theology of prayer, but the right motivations behind prayer, as he demonstrates it for the Thessalonians and before us. And what we learned from this text this evening, that was as relevant to us as it was to the Thessalonians 2,000 years ago, Is that prayer empowers and emboldens you for a life of service, love toward others, and preparation for Christ's return. That prayer not only empowers you, but it emboldens you for a life of service, love toward others, and preparation for Christ's return. I'd like to look at this in three points, just going right down with the verses. In verse 11, he prays for opportunity to continue to serve. Verse 12... He prays that they would have increased love, not only for the church, but also for all men. And then finally, Paul prays that their hearts would be prepared for Christ's coming. Not only for at His coming, but for the life now and their conscience in this life. So if you would look with me at verse 11 again for our first point. Paul says this as as he erupts into prayer for them. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. In a nutshell, Paul is describing his, his burning desire for the Thessalonians. Now, we, just, we had just read it earlier in chapter 3 that Paul had received a good report from Timothy. That he, he knows that his labor among the Thessalonians was not in vain. And he, we even read earlier... Not necessarily tonight, but earlier in the, in the book, that Satan had hindered Paul. But see so here we see Paul's determination. Paul, even though Satan had hindered Paul, and that Paul was still in Athens, Paul is still awaiting, he's still praying for them. And he's praying not only for them, but he's praying for opportunity, even in the midst of affliction and hardship, to still get back to them. He's praying that he can continue to serve. Paul wants to be used by God to further his kingdom. Paul has had a taste of that with the Thessalonians, but he he has such a love and such a desire for them that he wants to be among them again. He has intense desire for his church. And his desire to serve is motivated by affection for them. We think of it in our own context, in our own, around us today. Do we pray? How often do we pray? How often do you pray that God would use you in all of our circles, in our homes, in our marriage, in our places of work, to pray specifically for opportunities to minister. I was convicted um, when I think of this story of, I had a mutual, I had a friend and I was asking him why another friend of ours seemed to always be used by God. He was always, I, I used to joke and I said that he could be walking across the desert and come across somebody to minister to. And he he abruptly stopped me, and he said, well, because he prays for it. He asks for opportunities. He's not sitting idly back, waiting for these opportunities to simply fall in his lap, but he's actively seeking them. His desire to see the gospel go forth, his desire to see men and women transformed by the love of Christ, motivates him to pray specifically and in such a way that God would use him and to take advantage of those opportunities. Do you pray in such a way? That God would use you in places of work, in places of, in our homes, that we would be that we would desire to be used by God. Paul has this great desire to continue to be to continue to serve in this church, and his desire motivates him for prayer to pray. But also, what we see in in verse eleven is Paul lays out the posture of prayer. He not only lays out one element that we come to God in prayer for, which is service, but he lays out the posture in prayer. In the beginning of verse 11, he says this, before he even makes his request. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here, Paul is, first, he's, he's, he's making a theological point because the grammar in the Greek bears this out, but, but both subjects are pointing to a singular verb. So he's the verb direct is singular. So what Paul is is pointing at is, is the equality between God the Father and the Son. He's pointing that both of these, to avoid any kind of heresy of, of, of the Son being subordinate to the Father, he's putting them right on the same plane, and he's saying that both of these are equal, and they are both to come, we should come to both of them in prayer. Paul addresses God as, he first addresses him as God. Paul comes to him in reverence. He comes to him as creator. He comes to him as the one who has not only made all things, but sustains all things. That has given Paul his very life. But in the same token, while he comes in reverence, he comes as a child to his father. He comes as a child to his father. Knowing that he will not be rejected by God when he comes. Having confidence. I mean, how many of you, if your child comes to you, and has a request, will you deny them? Now, it depends what their request is necessarily, but the point is we have such love for our children, we have such affection for our family members, that it is hard to say no at times, especially when their requests are good and right and true. And, and this is what Paul's getting at, is he comes as a son to a father, requests, making his requests known to God. And we should come in the same way. But in the same way, Paul does not come thinking his own righteousness would suffice. But he also comes in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul, verse 11, God the Father himself and Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, he is, he's looking at Jesus as, as his authority, as his sovereign. And he's looking at Christ as the one through whom he can access the Father. The, one, the name to which he can come to the throne of grace. And I think implied in these verses is the work of the Spirit. Because we know from Galatians 4 that no one can cry, Abba Father. No one can come to God the Father unless it is in the Holy Spirit. So Paul lays out this theology, in a, this theological point of, of how we are to pray. That we come to God the Father in the name of Jesus through the power of the Spirit. It is the only way of accessing God. In prayer but Paul not only has a desire to serve and he only not just lays before them and us this evening a theology of prayer but he has a prayer for the Thessalonians themselves in verse 12 he desires them to increase and to abound in love if you would look with me at verse 12 He says this. He then turns his attention from what he desires God to do for him, being Paul and the missionaries, and he turns his attention to what what he desires God to do for the Thessalonians. In verse 12 he says this. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Paul asks that God would cause them, that God would be the one, God would be the active participant, that they would abound in love, that they would increase in love. Now, Paul doesn't want just any kind of love. Later on, he will, he will define love very clearly in 1 Corinthians 13. But Paul desires them to abound and increase in love because it is it is the very fruition of the law. Right? When, when Jesus is asked, what is the sum of the law? Well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your whole being, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That the sum of the law, the sum of, of, of God's gracious character that he has revealed to us is love, is biblical love in truth. Paul first asks that they themselves, Christians, would abound and increase in love for one another. Now, earlier Paul had said that he desired to be among them for fellowship, the communion of the saints, that they would strengthen one another, that they would uphold one another. And this morning in, in the Sermon on Job, Dr. Piper laid out that, that, that the Christian needs friends in times of, of affliction and trial. And that as the body of Christ, that we are united to one another in, in sharing one spirit, that we are to uphold one another, that we bear one another's burdens, that when one of us is, is, is afflicted and, and hurt, in a sense, we all are. And we should think of it in those terms so that we would not think so individualistic as our, as our day and age forces upon us, but that we should think as the community, as the community of saints, that we might be in prayer for one another, that we might use our spiritual giftings to further one another, It's amazing how these things even um, correlate, but even just in the junior high class this morning, we talked about accountability. What's accountability for? For building the body up, watching over each other's souls so that we might not stumble. And if we do stumble, we can then lift one another up and we can continue to march on our pilgrimage toward heaven. Mutual encouragement, using spiritual gifts, bearing one another's burdens, ministering to one another, but not only the spiritual, but the physical needs. Why is it that we have deacons? To minister to the physical needs of the saints and the broader community, but first and foremost to the needs of the saints. That we, when one of us has a physical ailment, that we come alongside. When one of us is, is moving or we need help doing something, we come alongside one another. We are a tight-knit community. And Paul is praying that God would knit these Thessalonian believers' hearts together in love for one another. And that it would abound and increase all the more. But Paul not only keeps it within the church, he then expands it outside of the church. He goes on to say, not only for one another, but for all men. The primary way that Christians love those outside the church is through evangelism. Is through through coming to those who do not know the truth and and proclaiming the truth to them. of, Of showing them the end of the road that they are currently traveling and warning them against it. Paul prays that that they would be filled with such love for one another that it would spill over into the community and that the community would look at that church and they would say, there's something different about those people. We think of Jesus' own words, that they will know, they being the world, will know you are my followers by what? The love you have for one another. And I think it's, it's great that it's that the church is the community and it's the school which we learn to love. Can we really love the world if we don't first love one another here in this room? I would say no. If we do not learn to love one another in the small context of this church, in a place that we all affirm the same truths and have the same Lord, if we cannot love each other in that context, how can we think we're going to love each other outside of the world when we'll face hostility? and we will face pushback. But at the same time, it's not only a test of our own hearts do we love the, do we love the saints, but also it's, it's the school in which we practice. One commentator put this very aptly. They said this, the Christian community is the school in which we learn to love. Like great musicians who practice tedious drills for long hours, Christians practice their scales at home in order to sing in public. In the community, love is commanded and modeled. This, it, it, and here is where it must be lived out and practiced. But if the community does not live by the model and the teaching of its founder, Jesus, how can it expect others to do so or hear its call to join them? Again, we come back to this notion that how does the world view us in the sense of our relation to one another? Do they see us and they think there's something different there's something transformed about those people. And it is, it's a great travesty when we see the church so fractured because the world then looks at the church and they think they're just, they're just like us. They, what, what, what is the difference between, between them and us in the sense that, that, that we have something that they don't? And I would lay it before us tonight. What is, do we practice love within the church? Do we practice our spiritual gifts? Do we view the church as as the school uh, of love in which we can then take out to the world? Do we think of it in those terms? But Paul not only wants to give them exhortation by his words, he then clothes his words by reminding them at the end of verse 12 that the same thing he's commanding them to do to love one another and to love those outside the church that he did among them. So he points back to his time that he had shared among them, and he says, imitate us, imitate me. Why? Because, he, because Paul is trying to imitate Christ. Paul is trying to live in such a self-sacrificing way. Paul is trying to lay before the believers something to imitate so that in his absence... They would not think of him just as a man who was eloquent or a man who had good preaching or or speaking abilities, but yet he lived it. I mean, how how often do we lose respect for people when they say one thing and they do a complete other? But when the two are married together, when words and actions come together and in harmony, we can truly respect that. We can truly respect when it is in truth and love. Paul's seeking to emulate Christ, selfless, a lover of truth, obedient to the Father's will. I think this is important, too, for who we look up to. And children, I think especially of you, who who is it in our lives that we look at as heroes? Paul here is telling the Thessalonians to look at him because he's seeking, though imperfectly, he's seeking to live Christ-like in all his ways. He's seeking to emulate what he preaches, to to put flesh and blood on what he preaches. But who is it that we look up to? You know, we often go into, we often see pictures of sports stars, and we see pictures of of movie stars upon walls, right? But what if we started replacing them with with pictures of missionaries, right? Those Those CT studs who would go out into Africa and to China, those Amy Carmichael's who would, who go to India, right? Those Hudson Taylors who leave everything at 21 years old and sail to China, right? Those Samuel Davies who labored in, a, in our own American context for years. Who is it that we look up to? And parents, who are we putting before our children as, as those to imitate? Because the, who we look up to, our children will also look up to. What we speak about and talk and, 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 and what we spend our time viewing our children will notice these things and they will emulate these things and and because they want to be like their parents they will put these people up as heroes in their own mind but paul puts before the thessalonians his his own example and his own model because he's trying to live christ-like but paul has a greater end in mind Though he wants them, he wants to see them again. He he asks God to direct his way to them. He asks that God would increase their love and that they would abound in it toward all men. And he asks that they would imitate him. He has a further goal in mind. And he gives it in verse 13. He wants them to be prepared for Christ's return. Verse 13 reads this. So that... He may establish, he wants them to love one another for all people. thirteen, so that he, God, may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Again, Paul wants them to pray, he wants them, he wants to see them again, he wants them to grow in love for one another. But it is so that they might be blameless in holiness. The, the, the end goal, Paul's connecting, he's connecting love with, with blamelessness. He's connecting love with blamelessness. He wants their hearts to be established in holiness. Now, I think the first thing to notice is that blamelessness does not mean sinlessness. Paul is not calling them to be sinless in the sense that, in the sense that they would earn merit before God. We know this because Paul, in verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, calls himself blameless. He says that I was blameless among you, as he asked them to imitate him. But blamelessness, blamelessness carries with it this idea that even though someone sins, a blameless man or woman, when they sin, they will immediately seek to reconcile. They will run to God. They will seek to be rid of that sin. They don't just simply acknowledge that sin, but they they hate that sin. And they hate the very fact that they sinned. If they, if they need to repent, they will repent. If they, need to, if they need to reconcile with someone, they will go and be reconciled. They will restore what needs to be restored. The blameless person is not sinless, but the blameless person abhors their sin and any other sin. And I think that... Psalm, psalm 15 gives us a great picture of this and how it even connects to holiness. Psalm 15, this psalm of David, reads this way: Verse one, "O Lord, who may abide in your tent and who may dwell on your holy hill?" And then he defines blamelessness. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. David in that psalm defines blamelessness blamelessness in holiness. Because David asks a very good question in that psalm. Who can dwell in God's tent? Who can can climb the hill of the Mount of the Lord? The bottom line is none of us can. At the end of the day, when when we think of our sin, none of us are blameless in and of ourselves. None of us are holy in and of themselves. But Paul here connects blameless not to any kind of their innate righteousness, but he connects it to holiness. Those who are blameless... Are enabled to be blameless because they have been set apart by God in holiness. They have been sanctified by Him. They have been claimed by God as His own through the gospel and thus enabled to live in such a way. And I think Paul points this, he points this direction for two reasons. He's doing this that the Thessalonians might bear a, a good witness. To the people around them, to the, to the people of Thessalonica, to be blameless before them, but also to give them confidence. First, blame, as a witness to the people, a blameless life is contrary to the world, because what does the world do? The world is constantly trying to, to gain for their own sake, right? They will go at any means to attain what they desire. But the blameless man or woman, what, is, what does he or she do? He swears to their own hurt, his own hurt, that, he, will, that he, will, he would rather take loss for himself than sin. He would rather, rather take loss to themselves than, than hurt someone else or see someone else put down low. It's a witness to the world because it shows a love for other people, a love for other people that overcomes pride and selfishness. But at the same time, it is not only a witness to the world, but it gives confidence to the believer. It gives confidence to the believer in that when we see in our, in our hearts, and we take stock of our hearts, and we see a hatred of sin, we should be encouraged. We should be encouraged because God is working in us. That even, even the weakest saint among us, if the, the hatred of sin is in their heart, they can have confidence. They can, have a, they can live in, as a clear conscience that, that they will be able to stand before God when He returns. That they will be able to stand in the judgment, not because they are, not because they are sinless, but because, because they desire to be holy. They desire to per- perfection, and they work towards that end, crying out to God in prayer that he would accomplish these things. Because if we notice in this, in this prayer, this is extremely God-centered. Every single verse, Paul points back to God. May God do this. May God increase your love. May God direct our way. May He establish your hearts. That God is, excuse me, that Paul is pointing all these things to the source. Paul is not calling on these people to be blameless because they, because they try just a little harder. No, he's calling them to blamelessness because they have been saved. That they have put their faith and their trust and their hope in Christ. And because they have done that, they've been cleansed of their sin. They've been cleansed and they have been united to Christ by His Spirit, thus enabled to walk blameless, thus enabled to desire holiness and to hate sin. Paul is not asking them to, try to, to simply try harder. Paul, really, he's, he's, he's urging them to pray for these things. He's urging them to come and to throw themselves upon the mercy of God, that he would answer their prayers, that he would work in them, that they would be men and women who, who love each other in the church, men and women who go out into the community and love their neighbors and are a light to the community and that they might walk boldly in this life to walk with a clear conscience before God knowing that no they're not perfect and that they will not be perfect until that final day where they're glorified but yet they strive and they, and they put away sin they strive for blamelessness they strive that they might live a life that exemplifies christ-like behavior to a lost and dying world, a life of blamelessness shows that a heart is set on heavenly things, because it strives for the things of heaven. Paul lays before us this evening not only a theology of prayer in how in how we are to approach God, how we are to come to God in the name of Christ, to the power of the Spirit. He not only encourages you and I to pray specifically for opportunities to serve, to pray to opportunities to serve within our homes, within our, our workplaces, within our communities. He prays not only, he, this, this, this urges us on to, to love one another, to love one another in the church, to practice loving here and take it out. And finally, Paul urges us to confidence, to live boldly in this life, knowing that when we wrestling with sin is the sign of the work of the Spirit. Wrestling with sin is a sign that God is at work and that we might live unto holiness because of, of that work of the Spirit. I think Paul lays before us here in his prayer this this urge simply to pray simply to pray how often do we think of prayer in those terms that we looked at in the beginning as just a final the the final straw or or how often do we think that since God is sovereign we don't really need to pray Well, I'd lay before you that it is precisely because God is sovereign that we do pray and that we have been given this great gift of prayer this 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 ability to come before God Think of it, if we, had any other, if we had any other problem in life, who would we go to in, in, in the worldly material things? We would go to those who have the most authority in the matter. So why would we not come and lay our requests before God who is sovereign over all things? And I think Paul is also urging us that just as we are to repent specifically for specific sins, we should pray specifically. That we should pray as individuals that we should pray as husband and wives, that we should pray for our children, children to pray for your parents, to pray for one another, to come together in prayer meeting and cry out to God as a body of believers, knowing that our Heavenly Father loves us and accepts us in Christ, Not not on our own merit, but because we plead the spotless blood of the Lamb who was slain. Let us pray. our God and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we come before you thanking you for the great gift of prayer. Lord, we thank you that you who are infinite, immortal, and eternal would give us such a gift that finite creatures who are on this earth a mere 70 or 80 years, Lord, we can speak to you, that you have opened up this access to the throne of grace, that we can approach you and make our requests known. Father, we do pray that you would make us a people of prayer. Lord, that as Paul was a man of prayer, that we have had countless examples throughout the generations of men and women of prayer, that you would make us men and women and children of prayer. That it would be the first thing on our minds in the morning and the last thing upon our minds before we lay our head upon the pillow. Father, we pray that you would take these offerings now, that you would dedicate them, we, we dedicate them to you, we pray that you would use them for the expanse of the gospel in our age. And we ask all these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cacheville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.